0: Welcome to the Parish Art Museum podcast, where we aspire to provide opportunities for learning, sharing, and celebrating the many innovative and pioneering artists who call the East End home. Come back each week to find new and impactful experiences in the arts.
1: Good morning, thank you all so much for being here. It is a real testament to Helen Frankenthaler's appeal as an artist and her importance that everybody is here on such a sunny and beautiful Sunday morning. We're very appreciative of, of your uh, joining us and celebrating this exhibition with us. And, uh, and with that, I know you're gonna enjoy the insights that will be shared by Alicia Longwell, our Chief Curator, Leah Motherwell, and Elizabeth Smith, and welcome.
0: As Terry said, Elizabeth Smith and Lise Motherwell are the co-curators of the exhibition. And I think it's really fascinating how the sort of germ of this idea was Lee's and how it happened to emerge. And I think particularly interesting how it's changed in some ways between the first showing in Provincetown and our showing here uh, at the parish. Could you talk a bit about that for us?
2: Uh, I'll start with the genesis of this project and then I'll let Elizabeth talk about the changes that were made for, for this show. But first, I want to just thank you all for being here. I know it's a beautiful day, and hopefully we will give you a little boost to your day by you being here and listening to what we have to say. So I am the president of the board of the Provincetown Art Association Museum. I'm also Helen Frankenthaler's stepdaughter. So I about 15 years ago, we renovated our museum in Provincetown, just as you did here. And that allowed us to get loans from museums. Our museum is now temperature controlled and has a vault and has security. And that opens the field for our borrowing works, both from museums and private collectors. So about 12 years ago, I, actually about six years ago, I curated a show of my father's work, Robert Motherwell, in Provincetown. And after that show came down, I said to the director, Chris McCarthy, well, you know, we now have to do Helen Frankenthaler. And she said, yes, That we definitely do. So the idea started about six years ago, which was also the time that the Helen Frankenthaler Foundation became active, right after Helen's death. And we hired Elizabeth Smith to be our first executive director. And not only have I spent all my summers in Provincetown and now am there much of the time year round, but Elizabeth Smith had also spent time in Provincetown as a child. So we both knew the town and we knew how important it would be to bring back the work that Helen had painted there for a decade, which had not been seen and never been shown in Provincetown because of the fact that there was no place to show it. So, it was a really exciting project and I will allow Elizabeth to talk about how, what differences there are between the two shows because there are some substantial differences and we'll talk about how that happened as well. So,
1: for, from the foundation standpoint, it was an extraordinary uh, <coughs> opportunity to work with Lise to put together the show. As Lise mentioned, the foundation was newly active. We inherited a collection from Helen Frankenthaler of her own work that she had kept and that is quite extensive. And part of our mission, well, the the largest part of our mission is educational. So opening up new areas of scholarly inquiry was extremely important, and we also wanted to be able to use our collection in new and interesting and different ways. We began with looking at works that Frank, that we knew Frankenthaler had made during her period of time in Provincetown. And we were able to avail ourselves of the archives also that had come into the foundation's collection. Frankenthaler kept great records. So we have terrific materials uh, that we were able to use to identify you know, which pieces had she actually painted in her various studios there. We'll talk about that a bit more later. But those selections formed the nucleus of the show, and then of course we reached out to other museums and to private collectors to build the initial checklist into something that really was representative of the work that Frankenthaler made during that time period. Of course, at the Provincetown Museum, as Lise mentioned, it was a bit smaller than the spaces here at the parish. So I would say that the show is about one-third bigger here at the parish because of the amount of space that you have here. And also because we could include, mostly from museum loans, but also from our own collection at the foundation, some of the very largest works, especially those Helen painted late in her time in Provincetown that were just too big to be included in the galleries at Provincetown.
0: Elizabeth, you alluded to the fact that it's not only Provincetown the place, but also the physical uh, structures, physical spaces that uh, she painted in the different studios. Could you elaborate on that a bit? And some are of course in this wonderful trove of archival material that we also borrowed from the uh, studio, from the foundation that shows the studio and shows her working. Some of the spaces. Maybe should start. Okay.
2: <clears throat> so Helen worked in three different studios in Provincetown and one of the things that I think is really striking about her work is that she was able to work anywhere. Many artists are inspired by a specific type of environment, you know, being on the water, being in the woods. She had her first studio at Day's Lumberyard, which was in town, in Provincetown, it was on a side street. It's now the Fine Arts Work Center, for those of you who know about that. And she and my father rented a barn that Hans Hoffman had suggested that they rent from the lumberyard. And it was quite a large space. It had planked floors. In fact, in both of their work, you can see the, the planks in the, in the paintings. I don't know that we have any in this show that show that, but um, it, was, it was quite a, a large space. My father bought a cottage across the street from our house and renovated it into two studios, one on the second floor for Helen, one on the third floor for himself, and then a beach house for us during the day. And Helen, so Helen was then about 15 feet from the water and on the second floor, so she could do, look down into the water and to the changing tides. The tides in Provincetown are quite large, and so the tide goes out about half a mile. So the sandbars show up, and you can see the eelgrass, and you will see references to that, those views in, in the, um, the paintings in the, in the galleries. Then Helen, we were spending so much time at the beach house swimming, and Helen was loved to swim, but she also didn't like noise when she was trying to paint, so she got a studio in what she called in the woods which was a studio at Nelson's Riding Stable, which literally was in the woods and in the dunes, in the, in the shrub pines, where um, she had a very large studio, well, I, I should say comparably large studio, um, not as big as this room, maybe half the size of this room, where she would roll out canvases and paint, and then she never cut her canvases until she had finished a painting, which meant that her paintings were not constrained by size or shape. And then she would cut the painting, she would roll it up, lean it against the wall, roll out another piece of canvas, paint. And one summer she painted so much that she, she actually created 45 works in that studio. And when you see the size of the works in the, in the galleries, it's really important to remember in those days, we're talking the early 60s to the late 60s, people didn't, and these were the, these paintings are really large. I mean, we now are so used to r- paintings that are as large as this room or works that are as large as this room, but back then those paintings were huge. And there was a sense of being able to be in the painting and really experience the painting because it was so large.
1: So getting down into this, you know, sort of nitty-gritty of her, you know, when and where was she working in these three spaces in Provincetown was was really important to the sort of the architecture of the exhibition because it allowed us to also ask ourselves questions about, you know, her studio practice, you know, how did she make these paintings? Where did she make them? And then leading on to the questions of in what respect did the environment influence her work and that sort of brings us back to the, the, the theme of the show, the thesis of the show, which is the impact of place on the work of an abstract artist like Helen Frankenthaler, and how does the, the, uh, um, the visual stimulation uh, of what she saw around her, and the experience that, experiences that she had in Summertime in Provincetown, how do those manifest, or do those manifest themselves in any way in her abstract painting? And that was a fundamental question that uh, we had for ourselves, in choosing the works to be included in the show. So we also chose to include some works that we weren't sure were painted in Provincetown, but that referenced the idea of summertime in some way, uh, or that were titled after references to Provincetown and to Cape Cod, because we wanted to, sort of, you know, in dealing with this issue of how is place and landscape present in the work of an abstractionist, we were looking at the very nuanced ways that Helen did respond to the importance of this place for her at this, at this particular time.
2: I would add, and I think it's really important, because we talk a lot about the atmosphere in which Helen painted, and well, Helen's paintings evoke landscape, she's not a landscape painter. Um, so so it's really important to remember when you're looking at these paintings that what she was trying to capture and in terms of abstract climates is really the atmosphere of the place where she was and her experience of that. And there's a small painting in there that was painted in, I think, 1950 called Beach, which was painted right after she Left Provincetown. She first came to Provincetown in 1950 f- to study with Hans Hoffman for three weeks, and she spent a couple of weeks studying with him in his classes. And then, having studied a lot of Cubism and formal, having had formal study at Bennington for her undergraduate studies, decided that she really had had enough of formal study, and so she spent most of her time painting on the on the porch of her cottage and really capturing the atmosphere and what it felt like to be in Provincetown, which I think is really important. So Beach was painted the fall after she left Provincetown, only a few months later, and she painted it with materials from Provincetown. So she used sand and plaster of Paris and coffee grounds and paint. And one of the things that, one reason I like this painting so much is because it really captures that whole experience. I can remember us sitting on the deck and her drinking coffee that she made from Martin's coffee, which was you know ground back then. And when, she was, when they were done with making the percolated coffee and the can was empty, she would use the cans for then putting the paint in, and then she would use it to pour the paint on her canvases. So, and the sand walking on the beach and swimming, and, and you know, it really captures the experience of being there and the, the sort of the leisurely mornings and the feeling of the beach and the heat of the beach. and all that, and and that's what I think she was trying to do when she was painting these paintings, was capture an experience. So one of the things that also we, I think, found when we were putting together the exhibition was that Helen was also really interested in the Provincetown rituals, and you will see titles that reference them, such as Blessing of the Fleet, which always occurs on the Portuguese festival weekend in Provincetown, which is the third weekend in June. And the painting is the same colors as the, close to the same colors as what is in the Portuguese flag. And while she's not painting the Portuguese flag and she's not painting the blessing of the fleet, you get a sense of the, the connection between that ritual and what she was thinking about at the time. And she, she does that over and over again, and it's a, it's a really wonderful way of thinking about how place does have an effect. It's not just the physical environment, but the rituals and the social life and the family life that she was having at, the, at that time.
0: Interesting. Isn't it wonderful to have these insights from both Elizabeth and Lise? Uh, we do want to claim Frankenthaler as our own for uh, one summer in 1955 when Pollock and Krasner both let her know that There was a a house and studio for rent just down the road, just down Fireplace Road from them, along to Conrad Marcarelli. He was going to Italy with his wife Anita, and it was available. And she did come out that summer and gives quite a, I would say, nuanced and very warm picture of Pollock and Krasner as neighbors, which is interesting as well. I might say that also the trove of letters that she wrote during her life, particularly to her friend uh, Sonia Rudikoff, over 500 letters over the course of her entire life, and she knew uh, Sonia from early adulthood, and also uh, to her friend Grace Hartigan, the painter, and a lot about uh, maybe times that it wasn't so easy to go into the studio, a lot of this in the archival material on view and in the timeline. But let's go back in time a little bit to the early '50s, when she, in fact, accompanied the critic Clement Greenberg, who was a great proponent of Pollock, and uh, she came to uh, Springs. She was in the studio and was able to see Pollock at the early time. What we know of the black and white paintings, also in those moments of sort of painting on the floor. Would you, Helen, was hugely impacted by Jackson Pollock. Of course,
1: you know, as as any good young modernist at that time, she was looking at and had absorbed lessons from so many of the great earlier artists, you know, ranging from Kandinsky. i interrupt you, but when you say
0: young, she was was 22 years out, that's 22. That's right. That's right.
1: She was was quite precocious um, and very talented at a, a very young age, so, you know, Miro, Gorky, Kandinsky, of course, all those figures were important to her, but also people like, you know, she was looking at people like de Kooning and, and others, and, but when she saw Pollock's work and she saw his shows at the Betty Parsons Gallery with Clement Greenberg, she described that experience as being akin to entering a foreign country and feeling like she had to learn the language, um, which I think is a beautiful metaphor so she was immediately taken with the impact and the power of Pollock's works that were impacting so many people at that time as being something really really new and she she was captivated with with wanting to sort of take it you know one step further so that led her after you know more exposure to Pollock and Krasner out here in the springs deciding to try her hand at laying the canvas on the floor thinning her paint and going at it, letting it rip, as, as she sometimes liked to say, uh, with trying out a way to experiment with a, a new painting technique that would take Pollock's as its jumping-off point. But hers was different. Instead of dripping the painting as he did, she thinned it and poured it out of uh, using those coffee cans that, that Lise mentioned, and she ended up creating what became known as her soak-stain technique That. You know, it was something she used for many, many years, and that was enormously influential on other artists.
2: So the other thing that she saw when she was at Pollock's studio was that Pollock, you know, dripped his paint. He wasn't using a brush. So Helen became very experimental. Not only did she paint on the floor, as Pollock had, but she started using all kinds of other instruments for painting. So she would use sponges and squeegees, and and make sure that when you go into the galleries, you also take a look at the hallway where there's a timeline and photographs and the letters that Alicia was mentioning. There's date books, there's postcards that give you real insight into what she was thinking about while she was working. But there are also a couple of short videos that are clipped together that show her working and moving this material around. I mean, the amount of paint that she is pouring and controlling and so it's so, uh, striking to see her doing that and then to look at the paintings and see how closely together the colors are but they're not touching or they're not overlapped. I mean she's completely controlling that process and which is very physical. She was not a very big person and so it took a lot of strength and a lot of stamina to be able to do that and she and she painted fairly quickly so you have to because the paint is moving and you're moving it around. So that visit to Pollock's studio was really, really um, significant because both she saw you didn't have to paint on an easel and you also could use any kinds of instruments. So she would be in the kitchen cooking and she'd see, you know, a potato masher or something and (laughs) grab it and say, oh, well, maybe I can use this or find a scraper and say, oh, well, let's see what happens when I use this. And so she was a great risk taker. and, And I have to say, she was not somebody who was dangerous she was not a heavy drinker she was not somebody who drove fast she was not somebody who did drugs i mean she was but her risk taking in her work was really extraordinary and she put it all there and she was willing to try using different mediums she worked in you know as a painter she worked as a printer she made sculpture in Tony Caro's studio in london she worked with ceramics so she was willing to try anything and there's a there's a painting in the um, Called, there, there's a series of four paintings, and they're made of watercolor, that are called Provincetown Series. And you'll see the one on the far left wall is blue, and in the middle of it, it's got this yellow crayon. And I, uh, that year, she and my father didn't have a studio, it was the first year they arrived in Provincetown, 1960, and she painted those paintings on the dining room table and i suspect i don't know that this is true but i think it's a good story that my sister and i were probably there with her drawing and that she thought oh crayon let me try that and picked it up and added it to this painting that she was working on and i think that that was how that's you know how she worked she saw whatever was around her and lots of times when she was in traveling and she didn't have paints with her she would use nail polish or lipstick or she would pull the the sheets of paper out of the drawers because she didn't have anything to paint on. She paint on it. She'd take the linen sheets off the beds in the hotels and paint on them. You know, so she was pretty um, inventive. And when she when she got the spirit, she started painting.
0: In one of the images that's scrolling, you'll see an expanse of water in the front, and the province, the breakwater, and then. Above that is the sea barn, which was enlarged over a period of years and actually went up a few stories, and apparently the locals started calling it the White Skyscraper because it got so big. But this is the extraordinary moment of just coming out of the house and leaping into the water, and if you look closely, you'll see Frankenthaler's head sort of bobbing around there. Was she an
2: avid swimmer? She was an avid swimmer, and she swam whenever she could, of course the tides, come in and out. So if it was in twice a day, she would be swimming twice a day. She taught me to swim. She taught my sister to swim. And as an adult, she and I would go to the Darien Y when she had her house in Darien, and we would swim laps together, which certainly evoked you know, the early childhood memories of learning to swim with her. But I think of her swimming as also a metaphor for her immersing herself in an environment and then rendering it. If you look at the paintings, you will see that many of them have this very watery, liquid kind of feel to them, which evokes both the Provincetown atmosphere, the Provincetown weather is quite changeable. It can be bright sunshine one minute, the fog will roll in within a half hour, it will suddenly thunder and lightning, and then two hours later, it'll be bright sunshine again. And you see the moodiness and the, and the change in the light and the change in the tides that really get reflected in these paintings. Uh, I don't think we've mentioned yet that we chose to title the show Abstract Climates.
1: And that comes from a direct quote by Helen Frankenthaler who said, my work is about climates, abstract climates, and not nature per se, but a feeling, and a feeling of an order associated with nature. So for us that idea of abstract climates was just a perfect way to title the exhibition and we also reflected on how Frankenthaler often talked about wanting to sort of capture the atmosphere of a place in her painting rather than you know any kind of,
2: of realistic depiction and the psychologist in me says human nature as well that she was really capturing her humanity and the world's humanity
0: I think that's a- wonderful place to close now. I know we've whetted your appetite. If you haven't been into the galleries to go right now, and of course to go back, if you have been, I will well, might you be around for a while and ava- available? Yep. I, I know they'd love to talk to you, and I'd love, we can all thank you so much for this exhibition. <laughs> thank you.